Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to really descend upon us. First, we ask that you would put your words in my mouth so that we are hearing from you and we're not hearing from a mere man. I also ask that the Holy Spirit would open our minds to understand truth and that the Holy Spirit would also open the eyes of our hearts uh, in order that the truth that enters our minds may impact our hearts so that from this point we are different from when we came in and that we are more effectively able to display the glory of Christ in our lives. We ask all these things in your name, Lord Jesus, and we ask it for your glory. Amen. All right, I want to uh, begin by reading 2 Timothy, the third chapter, beginning in verse 15 uh, through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, the assignment uh, that Gary left me was to discuss with you how to more effectively read uh, and understand the Bible. And of course, um, I requested six weeks in which to do that, and he said, you get one. Now, let me say this too, that um, I'm sort of, a, it's interesting that I'm the one telling him, uh, going over this with you, because I am not uh, a seminary graduate. In fact, I've never been to seminary. I've never been to a Bible school. I am in the professional sense, a layman just like you. And if I can get it, you can get it. <laughs> and that's what we want to talk about uh, this morning. Now, I want to follow Gary's pattern that he's been following uh, the last couple of weeks. Before we talk about how uh, we study the Bible, I want to talk about why uh, we study the Bible and I will why we should. And I will tell you that there are numerous reasons why we should uh, study the Bible. Um, I'm going to give you three uh, reasons uh, why we should study the Bible. And please don't come up to me afterwards and say, but you should have given this reason. Why didn't you say this? I didn't say that because I have chosen these three. <laughs> so I'm just warning you in advance. Now, the reason I chose 2 Timothy uh, 3, 15 through 17 is because it gives you a compact basis for why you should be studying the Bible. Because first of all, as it points out in verse 15, it declares or makes you wise for salvation and does so by declaring the plan of redemption. Now, the Bible doesn't save you. What saves you is faith in Christ. But there are numerous ways by which the Holy Spirit imparts that faith through preaching, through teaching, through witness, through personal testimony. But also the Holy Spirit can move you through the Bible, uh, through the words of the uh, gospel and through, well, not just the gospel. All of the scripture uh, can be a basis for revealing the salvation that ultimately brings you to Christ. But it's the Holy Spirit that does that. Uh, in giving you uh, the faith to trust in God. Now, the first reason I want to give you for why we should be reading the Bible and studying it is that it is a revealer of God himself. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens are testifying to the glory of God, but the scriptures are the most intimate basis on which God by which God has chosen uh, to reveal himself to us. And the revelation in scripture of God himself is far more in depth than just simply looking at the creation. In fact, Exodus, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1 7, uh, the apostle Paul prays uh, for the Ephesians and he says, I pray 
uh, that you will be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And the spirit can take the scripture and move your heart to understand the revelation of God that the scriptures are giving. Uh, and the scriptures will bring you far closer face to face with the glory of God. In fact, the scriptures are the only source of light in an otherwise dark world. In fact, Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And when we stand into the glory of God, we move into that light. Now, what does it mean when we talk about <clears throat> the glory of God? What is that? It's not just simply that what we think of as the Shekinah glory. The glory of God is the essence of who he is. And God is revealed in the great doctrines of the faith that you find within the scriptures. Uh, in fact, St. Augustine said this, Shall I praise you before I know you? No, I must know you before I praise you, lest I praise you amiss. So the scriptures move you into much more effective worship. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers in England in the 20th century, said this, We don't pray because we don't love him. And we don't love him because we don't know him. Again, it is the scriptures by which we learn not only to know him, but to pray more effectively, as Gary's sermon last week uh, demonstrated. Now, the scriptures reveal the great attributes of God. He's omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is eternal. He is infinite. He's immutable. He never changes, and yet he's flexible. And then it also declares to us and shows us that he is love, that he is holy, that he is full of loving kindness and mercy, that he is full of grace. The other thing about him, too, is that he is incomprehensible, but knowable. Why is he knowable? Because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. Why has he chosen to reveal himself to us? Because he loves us. It is love that moves him to reveal himself to us. If you want a good understanding of the, of the greatness and goodness of God, go read Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we read the scripture to learn of him, what you find out is as you are walking through this life and the trials and the adversities and the circumstances and the events uh, that you endure or go through, he meets you in those places and you discover he is exactly as the scripture has revealed him. This month, I've been walking with Jesus 50 years. And I can tell you from personal experience, he is generous, he is gracious, he is kind, he has always dealt with me uh, with patience, uh, and he has been faithful when I have not been. His grace is never failing. Somebody once asked uh, uh, Schaefer, the um, uh, founder of Dallas Seminary, near the end of his life, what did you learn in all your years of walking with the Lord? And he said, quite simply, it's all by grace. And I can tell you this morning, I know what he means. And you are learning what he means as well as you walk with him. Now, the second thing that we should be studying the Bible for, one of, another great incentive for that is because the Bible reveals us. Uh, it reveals what we are. Uh, it reveals who we are. Uh, it reflects and reveals to us our own sin and weakness, and it shows that how dependent we are on him. Uh, we are in the same boat that David was in when he cried out in Psalm 86.1, Hear my cry, O Lord, for I am afflicted and needy. We are, folks, we are afflicted and needy. And let me tell you something else. We are also utterly inadequate. 
And when I learned and realized that I was utterly inadequate and there was nothing I could do about it, I stopped trying to be as cool as the guy next to me was pretending to be. And it is a tremendous relief to realize that in Jesus you're adequate, but otherwise you are inadequate. Second Corinthians uh, 12, 9 talks about the fact that 12, 9 and 10, that when we are weak, then he is strong. He manifests his strength and his power in our weaknesses. Uh, the, uh, another thing that the Bible teaches us and for us, and that is how to navigate this world. We live in a darkened world. And I said in a sermon prior to this some time ago, we live in a world that is a minefield. And Jesus knows where the mines are. And the scriptures will show you that. Now, one of the other things I've been doing for 50 years is practicing law. And having been an attorney all these years, it has given me an insight into the lives of people I think most folks don't have. And again and again and again, I've seen people who have made a disaster of their lives and have ruined their lives because they made decisions out of ignorance and did not know what the scriptures said. And had they known, they would have avoided that trap. The scripture makes that clear to us. It shows us how to walk in holiness. But one of the other things that it shows us, and this is really, to me, uh, really terrific, and that is who we are in Christ. When we come into the knowledge of Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, and 5 says this, For he chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. He chose us to be holy and blameless before him in Christ and in love. He predestined to be adopted as his sons as you will, and daughters, in him, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So we have been chosen for a purpose. That purpose is holiness and blameless before him. That is why he has brought us in, in order to reconcile us. And the reconciliation is not that we are simply friends. We are now family. We have been adopted into his family. He is our father. Jesus is our brother. And what we are being trained to do is declare the glory of his grace in our lives in order that we might impact those around us, that they might see who God in Christ is by looking at us and hearing us. The scriptures teach us all these things. Number three, um, well, let me say one other thing under number two. The scriptures also teach us about spiritual warfare. And they teach us that we are on a battlefield. We have an enemy, and it is not people. The enemy is demonic powers under Satan's control. If you do not know the scriptures, you are a casualty waiting to happen on that battlefield. You've been called to the battlefield whether you like it or not. You're on a battlefield, and you better learn how it works. And the scriptures will tell you that, and they will give you insight into how to deal with demonic powers. Okay, number three, and that is uh, to be able to discern false teaching. Folks, I want to say to you that false teaching, uh, blasphemy, heresy, that's been in the church since the first century. The enemy moved quickly to do damage to the Christian doctrines and to the gospel. Uh, and one of the problems with false teaching, and I think why the enemy does this, is because it undermines the glory of God in us. And it is very easy to take a false step and go down the wrong road if you do not know the scriptures. And I will tell you this, the false teaching proliferates the American church. Their entire movements of false teaching that are ongoing. And people have wandered off into that. Christians who didn't know the scriptures, who didn't know what they were hearing, who didn't realize that they were listening to scriptures that had been taken out of context and twisted. Paul referred to the Bereans as, uh, I'm sorry, Luke did. 
uh, because he wrote Acts, he said the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they were receptive to Paul's teaching. They were humble and receptive to Paul's teaching, but they then went and checked out what he said in the scriptures. You should do that with everyone who teaches, every book you read, every movie you see, everyone that you hear teaching and preaching except me. Yeah, right. <laughs> Gary would agree with what I'm saying. Not that you shouldn't listen, teach, check me out. But he would agree that you should check me out. You should check him out. You should pay close attention through the scriptures to everything you read and are being taught. Now, uh, here in the Bereans is a particular example. They were receptive to Paul's teaching, so they checked him out. If you are receptive to teaching your hearing, that is tremendous reason why you should be checking that one out because you're more receptive to it and you're more likely to go down the road with it. That's why you need to be checking them out. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Secret Service agents are the ones that uh, are responsible for determining whether money is counterfeit. Uh, and the way they do it, folks, is not by examining counterfeit bills. They do it by focusing all their attention on the real thing because they know the real thing so well that they know a counterfeit when they see it. That is the same principle that applies in the Scripture. We should know the Scripture so well that we know the counterfeit when we hear it. And that's the third reason I want to give you. In fact, uh, Paul in 2 Timothy one of the major themes of 2 Timothy is the, the concern about false teaching. 2 Timothy is the last book that we know that he wrote, the last letter. He was executed shortly thereafter. 2 Peter, when, he, when Peter was facing possible martyrdom, Peter wrote 2 Peter, and in that his emphasis is to beware of false teaching. Jude wrote uh, an entire letter that dealt with false teaching. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.15 with regard to false teaching. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. And Jude 3 says, which is only one chapter in Jude, and Jude 3 says, uh, I am intended to write to you about our common salvation, but I have decided instead to write to you about the need to contend for the faith. And the word contend he uses there in the Greek was the word used for hand-to-hand -hand combat. So what Jude is saying to us when he says the need to contend for the faith, he is saying that this is a life and death issue in the spiritual realm. And of course that can bleed into the physical realm uh, as well. So what I want to get to now is how do we study the Word of God? And what I want to do, and there's numerous methods that are effective. I'm going to give you some, um, and this is what Gary asked me to do, to give a, give a couple of ideas on how you do it simply and quickly and easily. Well, we can get into very detailed methods of studying the, Lord, uh, studying the Word, but I'm going to give, give you something. They're not simplistic but they are fairly simple and fairly easy to do. When you just read the Bible, and you should just read the Bible, there is treasure on the surface. But I want to give you little insights on how to dig down under the surface because there's even more treasure under the surface. Uh, now, first of all, there are certain things that you ought to have available to you. One is, and this is number one, let me tell you what I had originally thought I would do. Rule number one. Get a Bible. <laughs> Rule number two, open it. <laughs> Rule number three, read it. All right, having that, let's talk about the rules I really want to talk about. First of all, you have to make time each day to do it. Uh, if you don't make the time, if you don't commit to a particular time that you're available to sit down and read the Bible and to study it, you won't. Eventually, you'll get off and, oh, I'll have to get to it tomorrow, and the next thing you know, you're not doing it. Um, you make time to eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, let me tell you this. If the only food 
physical food you got was every seven days on Sunday morning, you would be malnourished. The same is true spiritually. If the only understanding of the word you're getting is this morning and every Sunday morning, you're spiritually malnourished. And let me say one other thing. If you have no interest whatsoever in the scripture, you need to go back and examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. Because if the, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you have a desire to look at the Scripture, to read the Scripture. Now, you may feel intimidated by it. You may feel you don't have time. There may be various reasons. But if you have no desire whatsoever, I would think hard about that. And I would go back and examine, because it's the Holy Spirit in you that causes you to want uh, to study the Bible. Now, second thing to do, use study aids. Uh, and to start with, use study Bibles. Now, the, if they would, they would put up on the screen an example of a study Bible. This is the ESV. How many of you have got study Bibles? Yeah, a lot of you. Okay, it's really helpful. You see the, the latter oh, two-thirds of the page, the lower two-thirds, those are notes dealing with the verses in the first third of the page. Uh, also, uh, you'll see up there above chapter 15, this is John 14 ending and beginning John 15. You'll see that there is a little uh, synopsis of what you're about to read at the top of John 15. You see that? ESV will divide the Bible into uh, the passages into paragraphs, which makes it a whole lot easier to understand what you're reading. Some, some uh, Bibles just straight verses and it goes in from one paragraph to another paragraph, and you don't make the division. Now, you can figure it out, but it's easier. Again, if you, if you have questions about a verse, what I would do is I would be reading your scripture, then I'd go back when you have time and read the notes on it. All right, look at the NASB as another example of a study Bible. Uh, let me get them to put NASB up. Now, NASB is similar. You'll notice at the bottom are the notes. In the center there are other verses. Those verses are cross-references uh, that, uh, that deal with specific verses that you're reading. This one is from the passage in Isaiah. And uh, when you, like a particular verse up there, will have... Uh, letters by it, and it'll show you where that verse is listed or given the similar things about it or given in other verses. So you want to take a look at that. Now, NASB will divide the paragraphs, at least the ones I have. This is, this is from my Bible. Uh, when there's a paragraph change, uh, the verse that is the beginning of that paragraph will be in bold. So you can quickly determine when you're moving from one thought to another. It also will give a synopsis above that, uh, above the particular passage. Uh, besides cross-referencing, uh, it will also, usually most Bibles will have maps in the back of them. It's very helpful sometimes to have maps. Uh, NASB, for example, and I think ESV is true, they'll give you, a, before a book of the Bible, they'll give you a breakdown as to who, who wrote it and what the purpose of the book was. That's extremely important because anytime you're reading scripture, the first thing you want to understand and know is the context. In, you know, in real estate, they say it's location, location, location. In Bible study, it's context, 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 because the false teachers are invariably taking things out of context. Uh, now, a second uh, type of um, Bible aid would be a Bible dictionary. And you can buy those, but you can get them online as well. And the third would be the concordance. Have a concordance with you if you can. A concordance will do what the cross-referencing did in the NASB. The concordance will tell you where the same phrase or word is located in every verse in the Bible. And there's three that I would particularly recommend. One is Strong's Concordance. Strong's is, uh, tells you every single word in the Bible in every verse, as well as gives you the Hebrew and Greek meaning of words. Strong's in the book form is this high, this thick. To use Strong's, it is necessary for you to work out at the gym. Um, I use Strong's, I, not as much anymore. I hurt myself carrying it. Okay, and Strong's is one, Young's is one, Cruden's is another good.
commentary. They're all online. So if you're strong, use strongs. If you're young, use youngs. If you're crude, use crudens. <clears throat> now also, uh, you can get these commentaries online. Another online that I really uh, use a lot is Blue Letter Bible because it'll give you all of these things. Uh, it'll give you eight to 10 translations. Uh, it will give you the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, it will give you cross-reference. It'll also give you articles and commentaries. And so I use it fairly frequently, but I'm like Gary. I prefer to read not on the line, but online, but, but in the Bible or in the book. Um, that's because I live in the 1890s and we don't know anything about computers. Uh, but I, I get tired of just looking at the computer screen, and I'm sure you do too. Now, Gary also asked me to give you my testimony real quick, and I'm going to have to make it quick or we're not going to get to what I want to do. And that is I became a Christian my senior year in law school. Uh, that was January of 1968. I had no interest in the scripture whatsoever. I was utterly ignorant of the scripture. I didn't know how to use it. But when I heard a British missionary who named Stuart Briscoe preaching on Ephesians, the Holy Spirit suddenly opened my heart up. Uh, and the next thing I knew, I had a desire to read the scripture. Now, in law school, uh, the, um, the law school is extremely grueling. If you're not in class, you're studying. You go out of class, you go to the law library, they're at the law school, and you get ready for class, and you'll be studying till 10.30 or 11. What I did is I committed to stop studying in the law library at 7 o'clock each evening. I then took the good news for modern man, which is a paraphrase, not a translation. Don't use a paraphrase, use a translation. Uh, I also had Haley's Bible handbook was the only thing I had. My mother gave both of them to me when I went back to law school. Uh, I went down into the basement of the law libraries. <clears throat> Excuse me, there was nobody down there. Uh, the only thing down there were the statutes of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, 1658. There were study carols off to the side with lights. I was able to get over there, turn a light on, and read it. The first night, I started with the book of James. I, I don't know why. I love James, but I wouldn't have started with James knowing what I know now. I read all of James through. It took me 20 to 25 minutes, and I'm a slow reader. I read all of James through, 1 through 5. Then I went back and studied James 1 and read what Haley's had to say about it. Tuesday night, James all the way through. Uh, and James 2. Thir Wednesday night, James all the way through, James 3, and read Haley. Thursday night, James all the way through, and James 4, and read Haley. Friday night, James all the way through, and read James 5, and studied Haley. By Friday, I had read James six times. Then I went to Philippians, then Ephesians, and Colossians, Titus, 1 Peter. From January to May, I systematically read the New Testament epistles. I was not going to church at the time. I was a new believer. I didn't know where to go to church. But I will tell you, the Holy Spirit laid a foundation in me from reading those epistles that has never left me. What's the value of it? The value of it is the first time you read it, you're trying to figure out what it's about. The second time you read it, you know what it's about. So now you're able to look for other things you hadn't seen before. And each time you read it, you get more sensitive to the things that are in it. Uh, you start picking out things you hadn't seen. As I started reading Philippians and then Ephesians, etc., I would then start noticing verses in one book I'm reading, and I, hey, wait a minute, I saw that in Galatians. So I go over to Galatians and look at it. You start being able to cross-reference. You actually start being able to uh, uh, analyze it a little bit in your mind. And all I'm telling you to do if you do this is just read it. I'm not saying go get commentaries and get a, big, a lot of paraphernalia. Just read it. And do it that way, and your mind will do a lot of that for you. Now, Gary gave everybody an assignment to read John 15. My assignment to you is read the New Testament by next week. <laughs> what I want to say to you is this, and, and that is, um, um, let me challenge you. you. I'm not saying you need to do it, but if you're willing to do this, Read Philippians this week. It's a short epistle. It's four chapters. Spend four days reading it each day, uh, the, entire th the entire epistle, four times. 
I will tell you that I am a slow reader, as I said before. It took me about 20 minutes to read Philippians. It's about 103, 113 verses. It's real quick. If that speaks to you and it's of value to you to do that, then go to, let's say, Colossians. Uh, it's right after Philippians. Then try 1 Peter. Then try 1 John. Do me a favor. If you do that, please come and tell me what the impact on it was, on you, that it was, okay? I just want to know. I still do it. Uh, periodically, I do it. Uh, I've gone into other methods of studying, but that's a simple, quick way to do it. But that is not primarily what I want to talk to us about. I want to give us a couple of methods by which we can evaluate the Scripture on a rather simple basis. Uh, and what I've done, and we're going to look at a couple of passages. And so what I've done is I've come up with eight questions, which they're going to put on the screen right there. Now, is that the only eight questions you should ask? Absolutely not. These are just what I came up with. There are plenty of Bible study books out there that will give you other questions you should be asking. You may think of questions yourself. These are suggested questions. You take a passage, and let's just say it's a small passage, and what we want to start with is a small passage in Psalms, Psalm 23. It's very uh, uh, short, but it's also very well known. And so what we want to do is apply some of these questions as we grow through Psalm 23 so you can kind of get an idea of what it's like to dig under the surface. Um, are we going to apply all the questions? We No, uh, we're not going to do that, but it is well known. Uh, let's turn to Psalm 23. Um, incidentally, folks, objections you hear, and let me just say this real quick. I get objections from people sometimes saying, well, it's got contradictions in it. Now, usually they're talking about the Psalms. Let me say this to you. Yes, there are contradictions, particularly in the, not the Psalms, but the Gospels. They're minor. And any good trial lawyer knows that contradictions like that do not undermine credibility. They enhance credibility. I can tell you that if the Gospels were identical from start to finish, there was some collusion. Anytime you hear witnesses testifying in trial and their testimony doesn't vary a bit, you know there's something going on. It's the fact that there are little differences that shows that it's a legitimate testimony from the gospel writers. It enhances credibility. Don't forget that. Okay, let's look at Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, let's just go on home. <laughs> Isn't that great? That is, that is one of the most wonderful uh, passages in the entire scripture. Um, I'd love to be able to have a dialogue with you, but we, we really can't do it. This is kind of the way we do the men's groups. Uh, we dialogue about the passage we're looking at. What you're going to be doing with these questions is you're going to be making observations about what you're seeing in the passage. Observations then lead to insights. In the men's group, we have guys making different observations, coming up with different insights. Somebody has an insight into the passage over here. Oh, I didn't see that. And it increases my understanding, and I add my insight to his, and, and so we kind of build. What I'm going to tell you doesn't mean there's all there is to get out of this. You might get some very valuable stuff in addition to what I'm about to say. But let's just use the questions. First question is, who's in the passage? Well, this one's fairly simple. Uh, the Lord God is in the passage and David. But the way David writes the passage, uh, uh, writes the psalm, it really is the Lord is in the passage and we are in the passage. 
It's him and it's us. Now you'll notice verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That is a general statement of fact. That is a statement of his relationship with the Lord. Now what the rest of that psalm is going to do is it is going to explain how and why God is his shepherd and he shall not want. That's probably not good grammar, but the, the rest of the passage will expand on what's being said in the first chapter. Verses 2 and 3, he provides, uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Green pastures, from my perspective, my observation of that would be he is a provider of my physical needs. And he is also a provider of my security. Leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He is a provider of my emotional uh, needs, and he is also a provider for my soul. So he provides for me physically. He provides for my soul. He gives me rest beside those still waters. We get under stress and anxiety. What we do is we come to him and we are under stress and anxiety, and he comes and surrounds us with his presence. One of the things I like about David is that he is absolutely honest with the Lord. And he, I think the reason God said that he was a man after his own heart is because David didn't mind dumping the truck on the Lord. If you read some of his Psalms, he's getting it off his chest. You might as well. God knows anyway. He's omniscient. Look at what David says. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But one Psalm says, I've been up to my neck in Philistines all day, and where are you? Now, he does this respectfully. You always are respectful with the Lord. Well, what I notice about it, when he gets the stress off his chest, those psalms usually end in praise uh, because he comes to him and he gets it off his chest. Now, he leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Uh, paths of righteousness. Remember I said oh, a few months ago, and you probably don't remember, the Christian life is so often described as a path, uh, not a highway, not I-30, but a path. What's a path? A path is something that has been made by people traveling over it many times before you. It's not always easy to see, and sometimes it's got brush and rocks and that sort of thing in the way, but he leads you down that path, and it's a path of righteousness. God's desire is for you to live a holy life. He leads you in a holy life. Why is it for his name's sake? Because what I said earlier, what we are here to do is display his goodness and his holiness and his grace to those around us. And so he will lead you uh, down this path of righteousness. He will also make sure you don't step on the mines that are along the side. As long as you stay on the path, you're okay. And he leads you on the path. But he makes sure you stay on the path. Uh, and that that's, leads you by paths of righteousness. Another one. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What does it indicate the Lord is doing for us? He is not only provider, he is protector. Though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, nevertheless he is with me. Is Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you. David is saying, I know that you are my protector. I know that you are with me. Do you know that, incidentally? Do you know that he is with you, that he is your protector? Yeah, notice he says, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. What is that saying? His provision is abundant. He is never stingy. What's the principle that we derive out of that? We are utterly dependent on him. And he is utterly dependable. Now, you may, may or may not get that just reading it. That's why you want to kind of do some digging. This is designed to help you dig. Let's take another one real quick that's not quite so well known. This one is in Matthew. Anybody remember the Syrophoenician woman? Yes? <laughs> All right, good. 
You people around you are looking at you. <laughs> Matthew 15. Matthew 15, 21, beginning in 28. Uh, it's, it begins, it says, Jesus went away. Jesus went away from there and, with, um, and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Where is Tyre and Sidon? Well, if you've got a map in your Bible, it'll tell you. Tyre and Sidon is in Gentile territory. This, this is not the Jewish area. This is not Galilee. This is not Judea. It is strictly Gentile territory. In fact, Sidon is the hometown of Jezebel. So Jesus has moved into Gentile territory. And it says in 22, uh, And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, that was mean. <laughs> not really. We'll get to that. But a lot of people look at that and they say, well, why did he do that? Well, let's look at why he did that. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And your daughter, her daughter was healed at once. Okay, first thing you might say overall is what is the passage about? But then let's take... Some of the questions again. Who's in it? Well, the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus, the disciples, a couple that we don't see, the daughter that's demon-possessed, and the demon. Okay? Now, what does it tell us about her? What do we get about the Syrophoenician woman? What do we pick out from what the Scripture tells us about her? What can we determine about her? First thing we know about her is she's a Gentile. She's not one of the people of God. She's not part of Israel. Second thing we know about her is she, and this is fascinating to me, she's a Gentile living in what had been Jezebel territory. And she says to him, how does she talk to him? How does she address him? Lord, son of David. That's absolutely fascinating because Son of David is a messianic title that the Jews use to refer to the Messiah. She's a Gentile. Where did she get that? Well, she may have gotten it from being around certain Jewish people. But what's in, what is significant is that she applies it to Jesus, and she is absolutely right. What it indicates is that this woman has faith. That begins to give us an insight into her level of faith. What else do we see about her? Well, let me ask you this. What kind of a parent is she? Does it tell you what kind of a parent she is? She is a terrific parent. Her main focus is her daughter. The other thing we learn about her is she is desperate. Why is she desperate? She is desperate for her daughter. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks. Certainly not the apostles. Because she is desperate, that leads to something else, boldness. So she comes to Jesus. She says, son of David, help me. Jesus gives her what looks like a put-off answer. She, and what he says, it's not good to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. Now, your study Bible will tell you in the Greek, that's little dogs. So what Jesus is saying, it's not good to take the children's bread and give it to the pets. And she responds, even the pets eat the crumbs. Now, this lady gives him back as good as he gave out. <laughs> and you know what I think his attitude is? I think he's delighted. Because I think that's what he was doing. He was testing her. He said, you don't lack faith. 
you can go home, your daughter's okay. What do you think about this lady? Let me tell you what I think. I think she's magnificent. I think she is terrific. There are a lot of characters in the Bible that are minor characters. She's one. We don't even know her name. But some of those characters in the Bible, I'm telling you, in heaven, I want to meet them. One of them is Hannah, Samuel's mother. Another one is Jonathan, the friend of David, who was such an encourager and so courageous. I want to meet this lady, too. This lady is a picture of persevering, prevailing intercessory prayer, full of faith. If you're in a problem and you're facing the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of deep darkness and you're crying out to the Lord, I want this lady in my corner. She is a picture of what we should be doing because we are adopted children. We're not Gentiles or Jews. We're adopted children, and that's what we should be doing. Now, what's the principle here? I would suggest to you the principle is this. It's not a question of Jew or Gentile. The issue is faith. And all of the New Testament is based on that. The principle of the New Testament lies within this little discussion. Let me say one other thing about the fact that we are dependent. She is an example of the 23rd Psalm. Utterly dependent, and she knows it. Let me go so far as to say this. To the extent you understand your dependence on him, that is the beginning of genuine worship. As you understand your dependence on him, you begin to want to know him. And the more you know him, the more you are able to genuinely worship. Like Augustine, shall I praise you before I know you? No, I must know you, lest I praise you amiss. What about Jesus in the time we have left? Not much. What we see about Jesus is, uh, well, let me just, let me skip, let me come back to Jesus real quick. What about the disciples? Oh, they're a bunch, aren't they? <laughs> I like to call them the good old boys. They are not the people that we put on the pedestals in the Gospels that we see in Acts. They all change. The Holy Spirit will, will change them. But what's interesting is this lady knows this is the son of David. They're not going to acknowledge that for another chapter. All they care about is that she's shouting at us. No, she's not. She's shouting at Jesus, and she's doing it respectfully. Her pushback, if you will, and I'm not in favor of pushback with the Lord, but she gently pushes back, and she does so respectfully, and she wins the argument. The disciples don't get it. They say, send her away. Jesus doesn't do what they ask. And let me tell you one thing I've noticed in the Gospels, and I've noticed also in 50 years. I never saw Jesus send anybody away. Not anybody that came to him for help. I never saw him send any of them away. The only people that I know of that didn't get help from Jesus are those that wouldn't come to him. The other thing we learn about Jesus is he is full of mercy and loving kindness, just like God, which is who he is. But we also see his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence. He cast this demon out of this daughter of this Syrophoenician woman, and she's nowhere around. He cast this demon out from a distance. That will give you an understanding of his authority and his power. And then I often think about the poor demon. Well, I <laughs> change that. I don't consider demons to be poor demons. Can you imagine sitting there possessing this young woman and bang, he's out? <laughs> Why? <laughs> This is a tremendous passage, folks, and there's a lot deeper stuff in here than we've gone through it. But we're going to have to quit. But let me say this to you, and I'm sorry, I, what I wanted to do, and Gary had asked me to do this too, is give you some deeper areas, to, deeper ways of going. 
uh, into the scripture, and we just don't have time to do it. Um, there, there are other ways that you, I would like to have taken Colossians, for example, 1, uh, 9 through 15, and gone into how do you analyze uh, a passage in the epistles, but we just don't have time to do it. Uh, but let me say this in closing. Paul, the apostle, writing to uh, the Philippians, in praying for the Philippians, says this, I pray that your love may abound in real knowledge and discernment so that you may be able to approve the things that are excellent. What he is saying there is in order that you may understand what's really important and able to judge appropriate priorities. My whole prayer for us this morning has been exactly that, that in understanding the need to get into the scriptures that you will discern what is really important because so much of the stuff we do is not. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift first of your son, then of your spirit, and then of your scriptures. Lord, I pray right now by your spirit that you would cause our hearts to be filled with a desire to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings and on top of that, to begin to have a desire to study your word and to get into it and to see all the great treasure and depth there is in it. And Lord, I pray that as we move in ever deeper knowledge of you, our worship will grow deeper and stronger and that as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, those who don't know you will see Christ in us and say to us, what is it you have that I don't have? Lord, we ask for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit that will lead to powerful revival in a nation that is in darkness and confused. And we will give you all of the honor and glory, majesty, dominion, power, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you've got prayer need, come on down and some of the elder couples and uh, staff couples will be here to pray for you. You are dismissed.